On today's Fantasy Baseball in 15, we'll see which hitters are poised for another year of Babbitt Magic. Like death and taxes, Dodgers get a Dodger. <laughs> I have That's not had uh, three cold brews yet. It works great in a fantasy league. I'm just glad I am not at the dentist. Fantasy Baseball in 15 on The Athletic. Welcome to Fantasy Baseball in 15, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. I am Al Melchior. I am here with Derek Van Riper. It is October 1st, Friday, the last Friday of the season, the last Fantasy Baseball in 15 of the 2021 season. And DVR, we're going to we're going to go out big here. We've got a ton of streamers to talk about on the Friday slate. We're going to look at BABIP, risers, and fallers. Uh, we're going to make it a good show for the last one here. So let's uh, let's get started uh, with the Friday streamers. Now, granted, some of these pitchers uh, may not be there, particularly in your, your deeper formats, like Nestor Cortez might be there, might not, but he's got the Rays. Jose Suarez is at the Mariners. Eric Lauer at the Dodgers, obviously not loving that matchup. Eli Morgan at the Rangers. Tyler McGill at Atlanta. Willie Peralta at the White Sox. John Gant, who we've talked about on a few episodes, been much, much better, more effective since coming over to the Twins. He's got the Royals in KC. Josh Rogers has the Red Sox at home. And Dakota Hudson gets the Cubs. So, uh, DVR, how do these stack up for you? Group that is okay, not great. I think the pitchers I like the most here, I like Tyler McGill skills-wise a lot. The home runs have been the main problem for him, but the Atlanta offense is good enough to do some damage. So I would say McGill is about the bottom of the list that I would feel good about. Doesn't mean he's the last one I would use. I would say McGill, Nestor Cortez, and Jose Suarez are kind of similar to me where I'm comfortable enough with all of them I think with Cortez the Rays have secured their playoff seating so I think that makes me a little more confident in Cortez because the Rays might give some guys a day off and it might be easier sledding for Cortez than it would have been had that not been the case for the Rays so I think of that group Cortez is the one I like the most I understand why you'd want to throw Eli Morgan against the Rangers I really don't want to do it I just don't think I trust him from a skills perspective And I guess the one that really baffles me the most is Willie Peralta because the White Sox, like the Rays, could be resting a few players. It might not be a terrible matchup for him or as bad of a matchup as it seems on the surface because of how that lineup might actually be put together. Yeah, I mean, he's been a tough one. There have been certain pitchers. uh, Of course, Antonio Sensatella has come up a lot or his uh, teammate Kyle Freeland. Um, But, you know, Peralta is another one where it just it seems like he's too risky to start a lot of the time, and yet seems more often than not he he pulls out a good start. Uh, I want to ask you about John Gant because, as I noted about a minute ago, he has been much better since getting traded to the Twins. I think it's a pretty nice matchup at KC. Uh, what's your reasoning for not including him uh, along with the likes of, uh, say, Tyler McGill? I think you can probably push Gant and Dakota Hudson into that same cluster of usable guys. That really gives us five options. I'm going nowhere near Eric Lauer, but I think with Gant, it's just that we've seen little flashes from him before. The walk rate for the season is still concerning. 69 walks in 106 innings. That's always the one skill that I'm worried about with him kind of going completely sideways and, and really hurting him. But I think 
Dakota Hudson has the easiest matchup, and the way they've used him so far, you look at his rehab assignment, working his way back at AAA, he did go five innings twice along the way before being activated and did just face the Cubs last time out, went three and two-thirds. So there's at least a shot of him going five, but I think the, the only reservation I have with Hudson is that he doesn't seem like he would go more than five, so you have to kind of keep him near the back of this group, even though the matchup might be the best of all these options. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's interesting group on the final day here, but it may be in a different part of the season you'd ride with uh, Eli Morgan or you know take some risks that you wouldn't take on the the, the third to last day of the season, but. So it is. Uh, so uh, that's our final group of streamers. I'm not even going to try to talk about Saturday and Sunday because who knows what's going <laughs> to change between now and then. So let's get on with our final uh, stack grid analysis of the week. This has been a feature we've been running all week. Uh, so I figured we'd, we'd finish up looking at Babbitt because uh, you know, DVR, it's, it's a thought that I have a lot of times when I'm prepping for the show or even just looking at players for columns I write or, or setting my lineup and see a... Uh, a Babbitt break that looks really aberrant and think, you know, what does this mean for next year? Or what does this mean for the rest of the season? And so, you know, we haven't really looked at it comprehensively. So going to take a look at some of the hitters who have risen the most since last season in terms of Babbitt break and those who have dropped the most and some really, really interesting names turned up on this leaderboard. Starting with the biggest risers, Tyler O'Neill at the head of that list. Now, we've talked about O'Neill a lot this week because it's just been a breakout season for him in every way, including this way. So I don't know that there's much more to be said about him. Uh, second and third, Hunter Renfro and Brian Reynolds. For Reynolds, it's really just a return to his 2019 form. So we can we can look maybe at 2020 as uh, as an aberration. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, I, I think it does. And I think with Reynolds, he's pretty good at using the entire field, too. I don't think of him as a guy that pulls everything too much or I don't see any flaw. He runs well. I think he, the thing I think about with Babip is do you make a hard contact? Do you run well? And are you the type of player that's tough to shift against? If you do at least two of those things, then there's a chance you can run a higher BABIP than most players. And then the guys at the other end are guys that don't really do any of those things, right? The guys that don't run well, that pull everything, that maybe hit a lot of fly balls too. Um, there's like certain traits you can find in a profile that would make you more or less capable of sustaining a great BABIP. Yeah, and uh, also a return to normalcy for Hunter Renfro, but... His BABIP last year in uh, 139 plate appearances, 141. So obviously uh, looking for him to get back to normalcy. Although normalcy for Renfro has really been around like 272, 80. So the 289 may be just a slight overachievement this year, but hard to argue with the season he's had. I think the fourth player on the list might be the most interesting, Yuli Gurriel. Um, I'm not really not sure at all what to make of his season this season because as you know, somebody who's getting up there in age. He really, for the first time in, in his career in the majors, really was very selective. Um, and, and the rest of his skill set was kind of the same. And I tried to find a way to link that to the fact that he hit 333 on balls and play when he had been, you know, pretty much an average hitter on balls and play in his previous five seasons. Couldn't find anything DVR. So it looks, it looks like a fluky BABIP, but you do have this skill growth on the other hand. So... I don't know if you just would look for him to regress next year anyway, given his age and given that it's sort of an outlier in his profile, but do you see it differently? I think he could still be a 280-ish hitter, but I don't know if I see another 300-plus coming from him. It's so hard to hit 300 anyway. 
I know he puts a lot of balls in play, and he did a better job than ever of not swinging at pitches outside the strike zone, but he doesn't make an overwhelming amount of hard contacts. You have to wonder if the 41.1% we saw from him this year, if that's sustainable, doesn't launch the ball consistently enough to have a good barrel rate. It seems like more flaws than skills that I can depend on. I think it's possible you end up drafting him just because he might be cheap. You might have a room full of skeptics, and as a result, you might get some good counting stats at an affordable price. But the 31 home runs we saw in 2019, clearly the year of the rabbit ball had an impact there. We haven't been close to that level of power output since then. So I I see more of like a 15 homer guy whose second best category could be batting average, uh, depending on where he he fits into the lineup. There's a club option for 2022. If he stays in Houston, I think I like him more than if he goes somewhere else. Yeah, I think that's... uh... Easy to easy to agree with. Uh, if we just look at the rest of the top ten really quickly here, Adam Frazier, number five, really started out poorly with the Padres, but he's come around and and of late hit just as well as he has or as he did with the the Pirates, uh, and that's all just based on line drive rate. Right? He's been a line drive hitter, but just really going extreme in a positive way in that regard. So he looks like a regression candidate to me. Uh, next in line, Javier Baez, who's been a good Babbitt pitter over his career. So that just looks like him finding his level again. Nicky Lopez. I know you have been a skeptic at times. He had 295 on grounders when uh, a typical rate in the majors is like around 230. I don't know, even though Lopez has speed, I'm not sure that uh, he can sustain that. Nick Castellanos, he's been a, ground, or a uh, line drive hitter throughout his career. Kyle Schwarber. Uh, elevating his line drive rate this year and Austin Riley hitting 340 on grounders. That looks fluky. So for all the improvements that Austin Riley made this year, I think he could be a batting average regressor in 2022. Yeah, I mean, I I never looked at the profile and saw a future 300 hitter in the big leagues, but doesn't mean he can't hit 270 or 280. Like that's still on the table, I think. He hits the ball hard. He doesn't strike out too much. He doesn't fit the runs well criteria, but I think when you when you hit the ball as hard as Riley can hit it, and it's not overwhelming pull, even though it's a little more of a pull-happy approach, I don't think he's just the guy that's going to pound the ball to the left side of the infield all the time. Uh, there, there's, there's quite a bit to like here. I think most of the breakout is sustainable, but yes, the category that I would be least likely to expect from Riley again next year is that 302 average. So given the expectation of some regression there, but maybe not elsewhere, where do you see him falling among outfielders for next season? Mm, probably, I, I would guess that the the market's going to treat Austin Riley probably similar to the way that it has treated Michael Conforto in the past. You know, uh, uh, an outf- if you're looking at him as an outfielder, he's the guy that doesn't really steal many bases, might get you like two if he starts running, but he's only attempted three in his career and he's never converted one successfully. So uh, a non, non-stolen base contributor who has legit power and run production and either a better than average or average batting average. Good player for sure. I think that puts him in the 75 to 90 range overall in terms of his ADP. That probably makes him about the, if I'm doing the counting right in my head, something like 17th, <laughs> 20th outfielder, something in that range. Seems fair. I I think he fits really well on a core that has plenty of speed early. Like he's yeah. at the price, it's more likely that you're going to need some steals with that pick. So I kind of wonder if I'm just going to get shut out on Riley next year because of how my rosters are generally built. 
And that might be all right, uh, because it's not all that often that you can get that much speed early on and, and uh, you know, build a, a roster early. That makes it make sense to, to take Riley uh, when he'll likely go. Now, you mentioned Michael Conforto. He's on the other side of the ledger. He had the second biggest drop uh, in terms of Babbitt from last year to this year. I like him as a bounce back candidate next year because the power numbers uh, in terms of barrel rate and exit velocity and flies and liners, the, the, I mean, that was roughly where it's been, uh, maybe a slight decrease. So uh, I, I do, I could see myself with some Conforto next year, but number one is also, it's a player I associate with UDVR and that's Willie Castro. Um, and not nearly as much power this year as last year, not as many line drives. So probably earning the top spot here. But what do you see for him next year? Not only in terms of performance, but playing time. Oh, man, I'm the Willie Castro guy. That's that's what I've become. <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> no, I, I like him. I, I think I tend to believe in a few of the Tigers' young infielders. I know Ian Kahn likes Castro a good bit, too. I'm surprised he didn't do more with the opportunity this season. I wonder how much of it was last year not being long enough for teams to adjust and and kind of you know get those numbers into a more reasonable sort of level. I think he's more of an AL only guy initially and kind of a watch list player for deep mixed leagues. Playing time could be an issue because things are a tick crowded there. I'm with you on that. Michael Conforto bounce back. By the way, don't know if it's going to happen in New York. I wonder if they'll give him a qualifying offer and if he might just bet on himself for a year to go back into free agency and you know mash in a familiar environment or if he's going to want to move on and try and go to a more hitter friendly ballpark but regardless of whether he stays in New York or not I think Conforto and where he is likely to go in drafts is among the reasons why I'm not necessarily tripping over myself to take Austin Riley at that inflated price. Yeah that makes sense. Um, third on the list is Mike Yastrzemski and I think Pretty sure I wound up with more of Yastrzemski than any other player on my teams this year. And that's obviously not worked out great. I mean, the power has been there in a lot of ways. Uh, it's been a similar season to what he had in 2020 and also 2019. But because he's on this list, the Babbitt break was down. And so therefore, the overall batting average was down. But I think that could be good news. Let's say if you've got Yastrzemski in the keeper league and you're considering him as a keeper for next year, uh, that he should bounce back in batting average and everything else looks pretty good. Right. I think that all makes sense to me. I think the role is still that of a big side platoon guy. And I think even even if he did occasionally play more against lefties, the Giants maximize their 26-man roster in a way that no one really maxes out playing time. So that does put a cap on his counting stats. The per-game production should be better next year from Yastrzemski. But at the same time, you got to be careful with him in more shallow mixed leagues because for every six games on the schedule, he may get two of those games off. Yeah, and it wasn't looking that way earlier in the year, but he just hasn't performed against lefties this year. So yeah, that's something that could carry over to 2020 uh, and definitely a, a good thing for us to consider. But I guess fitting DVR that we're going to end this season's shows talking about a San Francisco giant because they've definitely been one of the big, big stories this year. But it's been an absolute pleasure doing these shows with you and Michael Beller and uh, wish you the best of luck, luck on your final week. I wish, I wish everybody out there the best of luck as you wrap up your seasons. Yeah, it's been a blast doing this show with you again, Al, and hopefully we'll, we'll get to do it again next year. <laughs> I hope so, but uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a wait, uh, so uh, I just hope everybody has a good rest of the season and a good off season. and thank you all so much for tuning in this year. So on that note, for Derek Van Riper, I'm Al Melchior, and we'll hopefully see you next year. <laughs>